morning. This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Job, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 and 13 through 22. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Okay, I invite you to open your scriptures to James. We'll go back to Job in just a little bit. Uh, we're going to start with James, the New Testament letter. We're going to talk about walking with God through difficulty and deprivation. And, and we've already seen that in Job chapter 1. There are 42 chapters in the book of Job, and in chapter 1, it sets the scene for us to learn the purpose of the Lord in what he was doing in that Old Testament book. James 5.11 Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God engineers our circumstances so that the illusion of our control and immortality is removed. And even for mature believers, that can be uncomfortable. It is a kindness for God to adjust His world to get His creatures' attention. Later on, we're going to see God give Job a 70-question test as He gives him a virtual tour of His universe. And a lot of that tour happens to focus in on God's creatures. So it's a kindness for God to adjust our circumstances, to, to sort of tap into our affluence, our comfort, to get our attention because He loves us. 
One benefit of slowing down is that some of us will come to realize how unsatisfied we really are or how fractured our relationships have become. According to Business Insider, one city in China is reporting a record high number of divorce requests after husbands and wives had to quarantine together. When we slow down and we focus on what's really going on, what the reality is, it may not be a very pretty picture. We might also realize how far down the rabbit hole we have gone into the addiction of busyness and commotion and distraction. It's a kindness of God to slow our world down so that we can see these things clearly. The tool God often uses to bring us back to Him is affliction. In Psalm 119, the psalmist, in two different places, he says this, he goes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. Verse 68, Psalm 119. You are good and what you do is good. Verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might. And here's the purpose statement that the psalmist puts forward, that I might learn your statutes. Jesus himself said in Mark 2, verse 17. And this is the verse we keep going back to during this series. Uh, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. So it's a goodness of God. It's a kindness of God for him to afflict people, to remind us and to remove that illusion of immortality. This is the third sermon in a series called Walking with God. Uh, We're just taking these week by week. And this morning we're going to be talking about walking with God through difficulty and deprivation. Last week we considered walking with God through disease and sickness. And for our hope and our encouragement, we looked at three Old Testament illustrations. Matter of fact, Romans 15, 4 says this, for everything that was written in the past, the Old Testament, was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Last week, we received hope from how God interacted with Abraham and Sarah, how he interacted with Moses and how he interacted with Naaman. And we saw some of the purposes of the Lord in allowing and using disease as a tool to draw people or protect people. This morning, we're going to focus on a single Old Testament character for our encouragement and hope. And when we speak of difficulty or deprivation or affliction and confusion, even doubt, you will be hard-pressed to find a better example than Job. That's why James says this, and I want to read this again, James 5.11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Notice what he says next, what the New Testament writer says. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Okay, what have we seen? What are we supposed to peek in and learn from this? This is what we're supposed to learn, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Those are two things we often forget when we're going through difficulty. Those are two things we often forget Uh, when, When God decides to not give, but to take away. And so really you have difficulty and deprivation that form a single narrow path down which we come to know God better. J.I. Packer said this, Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place on their own accord. Job's journey resulted in this truth in Job 36, 26. Job says this, Behold, God is great, and we know Him not. The number of His years 
is unsearchable. So please take your scriptures and turn with me to Job chapter 1. We'll spend the rest of our time in this book. Job chapter 1. While you're turning there, uh, just an overview. Job is characterized as a wisdom book. It belongs with Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. The overall message of the wisdom books is this. Ultimate satisfaction in life is not found in any one component. It's not found in family or success or wealth. And ultimate satisfaction is not found in a combination of components. It's not in health and wealth or success and family. Ultimate satisfaction can only be found in God, the Creator Himself. That's what all these books point to. Job does this through deprivation. Psalms does it through praise. Ecclesiastes does it through satiation, being so filled you're overflowing. But the book of Job makes this point through pain. And in many ways, Job is a snapshot of life. If you just, if you just were, re, if you were listening in Job chapter 1... You have the emotional pain of losing someone you love dearly. The physical pain of affliction and suffering. The situational pain of losing possessions and stability. The relational pain of friends assuming you did something to cause the suffering. And, and, and there's another one that we sometimes overlook, but it's that theological pain of trying to understand that tension between God's sovereignty and His goodness. Why he has chosen to afflict you personally. What makes that one so difficult is it's invisible. Nobody can see that kind of suffering. C.S. Lewis said this. Mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. Now, since we can't cover 42 chapters in a single sermon, not in depth anyway, uh, we're going to do a flyover. We're going to divide the book into four parts, do a flyover and try to understand what James said is that purpose of the Lord. So here are the four sections. The devastation. That part was read to us this morning. That's the prologue. That's the beginning. The devastation. That only covers the first two chapters. Then you have this huge section uh, that goes into three cycles of human dialogue. And then finally, after the humans get their say and they're going back and forth, then God speaks. And we call that the divine monologue. And then the epilogue is the blessing where God comes back through. And it sort of mirrors the devastation. So you have these kind of these bookends, the devastation and the blessing. And in between, you have a lot of human speech. But then you finally get to hear from God. And it's amazing what God actually says. So let's look at this. The devastation. Job chapters 1 to 2. Almost every Christian is familiar with these two chapters. This is what we call the loss or the devastation or the sellout. And the reason I say sellout is because it's painful to read where you actually get a glimpse of Satan appearing before God and asking permission to afflict Job. It's often been called the wager scene where it seems like God has been lured into a challenge, and then he throws Job under the bus. But that's not what's going on. Matter of fact, here, here's, here's the purpose of God in this section. Here's what we should learn about the devastation. And if, and if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Job chapter 1 to 2, amidst all the other narrative and all the other details, and amidst all this devastation, this should stand out and be highlighted. 
Nothing happens without God's permission. Even Satan needs to ask permission to do what he did. There is a comfort in God's supreme kingship. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is actually supposed to comfort us. And there are some things that are going on in the spiritual realms that we, we, we number one, don't know about. And even if we could get more of a glimpse than we already have from Job chapter 1, we wouldn't understand. This is where Job, towards the end of this section, in verse 120, chapter, 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 21, he says this, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Those are the, the, those are the mile markers of life. The Lord gives, the Lord takes, the Lord gives, the Lord takes. And the question would be, do we trust God enough to submit to His giving and His taking away? Nothing can happen without His permission. And we're going we're to start to understand some of the character of God then. But do you trust Him enough to submit to His giving and His taking away? Matter of fact, chapter 1 emphasizes three things will not keep you from difficulty and deprivation. Number one, your wealth will not keep you from difficulty. Number two, your family will not keep you from difficulty. And number three, this is interesting, your righteousness will not keep you from difficulty. It was, even, it was even God who drew attention to Job and said, Have you considered my servant Job who is righteous? Look at verse 22, Job chapter 1. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And here's what we come to find out about Job. He feared God. That means he was alive to God. He sensed God. He was aware of God. He experienced God. He had, this, he had such a keen awareness of who God is is that it shaped his life. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. It says that Job was one who feared God. And what did that knowledge of God, that experience of God, that awareness of God do? It caused him to turn away from what? To turn away from evil. Look at verse 8. We'll continue reading in the middle of the verse. A blameless and upright man who fears God, same result, and turns away from evil. So then Job is stricken with painful sores and Job tells his wife, go into chapter 2, look at verse 10. And this is a difficult question to ask and to be asked. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? And the opening section ends with this detail, verse 13, chapter 2. And they, Job's three friends at this point, the fourth friend has not showed up yet, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Just a snapshot of severe suffering already going through a week where they're not even speaking to him because he is in so much anguish. That's the first section. The second section, we're going to move into that, Job chapter 3, is the human dialogue. So for the next 35 chapters, for the most part, it records a series of dialogues arranged in patterns of threes. So Eliphaz will speak, Job will respond. Bildad will speak, Job will respond. Zophar will speak, and those cycles just keep continuing. And we're not going to be in this section long, but here's what you need to know as you read from chapter 3 to 37. A lot of right things are said. Matter of fact, Job's three friends say a lot of right, good theological statements. But a lot of wrong assumptions are made. 
And sometimes when you use truth and you weaponize truth and then you make wrong assumptions or hurtful applications, it actually hurts more sometimes than if somebody were outright lying. They're actually weaponizing their theology, right theological statements, to actually add to this man's suffering. What we see in Job's friends is human wisdom's attempt to explain the unexplainable. And here are some of the real questions that come out of this section. And they're all asking the same questions. Number one, is God just? Is He fair? Because the experience in this life causes us to question God's fairness. Listen to what Job said about God. Look at Job chapter 9, verse 22. I mean, this, this is a striking statement out of Job's mouth. He says this, it is, is it all one? Therefore I say, He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, He mocks at the calamity of the innocent. Have you ever asked a similar question to what Job just asked? Job also said this in chapter 16, verse 9. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. You ever felt like that's how God was dealing with you? He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Chapter 16, verse 9. Have you ever asked that question or made that kind of a statement? I mean, this is, this is not just a theoretical path. This is a path I've walked I continue to walk. Many of you walk. And some of us, we haven't even made it to chapter 42 yet where he resolves this issue. Here's the lesson. When there is a gap between God's way and wisdom and our way and understanding, we must fill that gap with trust in God's character. Trust in who God is. That's what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will what? He will direct your paths. Secondly, not only is God just, but out of this section, does God rule His universe on the strict principle of justice? Job actually demands that God show up. This is not, by the way, one of the applications we're going to take from this. But listen to what he says all the way towards the end of this second section in verse 35 of chapter 31. Listen to what Job says. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Because at this point, God's been silent. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Does God rule His universe on the strict principle of justice? Well, in just a couple chapters, God shows up and responds. Here is a, here is a third question. How is Job's suffering to be explained? Or for that matter, how is any suffering on a good and upright person. That's what God called Job. How is that to be explained in light of justice and fairness? And here's the disappointment. The book of Job never answers that question. What it does do is point you to the character of God, that He's all-powerful, that He cares for His creatures, and that we can trust His wisdom. Job starts to feel this a little bit, even back in Job chapter 13, verse 15. Listen to what Job says. Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. I will trust in Him. And then in this section towards the end, someone else shows up, a fourth friend, wandering seemingly out of nowhere. He's the only one of the friends, of the four friends, that has a Hebrew name. Elihu draws a more sophisticated conclusion that God might use suffering as a warning to help people avoid sin in the future. Or He might use suffering to build character. 
or he might use it for a work he's preparing them in the future. And all those are good points. Elihu says Job is wrong to accuse God of being unjust. And then after Elihu's speech, guess who shows up? God does. That brings us to the third section in Job chapter 38 to 42. I want you to look at this because the Lord now finally answers. This divine speech, this divine monologue, nobody gets to interact now, right? Job's friends spoke, Job responded, another friend spoke, Job responded. Only Job's going to respond in a very careful and meek way. Four chapters, or five chapters, and it divides into two sections. The first section is chapters 38 to 39. Here, God is challenging Job and his knowledge and control over or ability to care for Creation, And this is where sort of God gives Job a virtual tour of the entire world with a 70 question test. And it sounds something like this. Job, do you know? Job, were you there? Job, can you do 70 times? Here's here. Here's a few of my favorites. Chapter 38, verses four to six. God asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely, you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars, when the angels sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Question mark. Job doesn't respond. Another one of my favorites is in chapter 38, verse 16. He asks Job, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, Job? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it if you know all this. Look down at verse 31, chapter 38. He's going to start talking about the stars and some of the galaxies. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? One more example. He starts to systematically go through all different kinds of animals. Uh, one of my favorite, Job chapter 39, verse 19. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. There's a much longer description of the horse. But this is what God is doing. A 70-question test on his creatures. And the point is this, the point isn't the purpose of suffering. The point is God took great care in designing and caring for his creatures. The second part of this divine monologue, chapters 40 to 41, God now takes sort of the zoom lens and focuses in on two creatures specifically. But look at Job 40 verse 2. It's a very insightful question. He, he responds, see, see, God had been listening to their dialogue, even though he chose to remain silent. Job 40, verse 2. This is God to Job. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And now he focuses in on these two creatures. One is called Behemoth, and the other one is Leviathan. They sound like the hippo and the crocodile, uh, but they're different. Matter of fact, the second one, the first one does sound like this very large dinosaur-like crocodile. But the second one, if you read the description, sounds a lot more like something like a dragon. Look at, look at chapter 40, verse 15. 
So he takes him on this virtual tour, and now he focuses on two primary creatures. Behold behemoth. And what does he say next in verse 15, chapter 40? Which I made as I made you. All of this, we're almost towards the end of Job already, and it's just highlighting God's incredible creative work. And then look at chapter 41, verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Look at verse 5, chapter 41. Will you play with him as with a bird or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Look at verse 8. Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. God basically puts, puts before Job these two incredible Creatures And what Behemoth and Leviathan do is they provide symbols of disorder and danger. Not evil, but they're not safe either. And the assumption is if God's creation is not safe, then there's something also unsafe about God. And perhaps it's from this that C.S. Lewis captured the idea about Aslan and where Lucy was asking Mrs. Beaver if Aslan, if God is safe. And she says, of course, he's not safe, but he's good. See, this section teaches us that the book of Job is not ultimately about Job or about suffering, but about God and his relationship to his creation, to his creatures, and, and, and specifically to us. I love Job's response after this section. Look at Job 42. And I don't want to rush through this because this is a rightful response when we are struggling and accusing God through difficulty and deprivation. Look at Job chapter 42, verse 1 to 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I uttered what I did not understand, Job confesses. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Then he quotes God again. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And then Job responds. I, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. See, that's what God was interested in all along. An experiential knowledge, a growing knowledge of who he really is in his, in his character and in his wisdom and in his might. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Sometimes that is the purpose of the Lord in affliction. Like the psalmist said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept your word. Or we could say before I was afflicted, I was arrogant and I made charges against you, but now I repent in dust and ashes. So let me ask you a question this morning. Do you know why some good people suffer and why others don't? Do you know why some righteous people suffer and why other, while others who are actively evil don't? Or why some righteous people die at a young age and why many wicked people live until they're old? And the answer to all those questions is we don't really know. That's in the realm of God's wisdom. Matter of fact, Jesus' own disciples had their own false assumptions. In John chapter 9, in the New Testament, in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. It's a grown-up man. He's now on the streets begging, and he has never been able to see during his entire life. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, 
this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned or his parents. He's not saying they were sinless, but there was no direct sin that caused the blindness from either the parents or the man. Jesus said it was not that this man sinned or his parents. And here's the purpose statement. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he follows this up. And remember, we're talking about being blind from birth. And there's a, there's a spiritual connection. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Blindness, darkness. Dark morally, dark physically. Healing equals sight. Jesus uses his, him as a living illustration to say that he is the light of the world. So, I don't know why people suffer. You don't know why people suffer. Why they go through difficulty why they go through deprivation. But we need to stop getting entangled in causation and begin resting in God's good sovereignty. H.A. Ellison wrote about the book of Job, the book does not set out to answer the problem of suffering, but to proclaim a God so great that no answer is needed for it would transcend the infinite mind if given. And then you have one final chapter, chapter 42, which is the blessing or the epilogue. Look at Job chapter 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. Listen to what it says. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. See, Job's friends were not comfortable with a God they could not control. And they were not comfortable with a situation they could not explain. And that takes humility and submission to simply let God be God and to fill that gap between God's wisdom and ways and our understanding with the trust in who he is. Now, notice the blessing. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and the Lord gives again. Job 42, verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Notice the next phrase. Don't miss this. When he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Verse 11, Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Everything is restored. Not as a reward of right for right behavior, but as a generous gift of God to one of his creatures, Job, whom he loves unconditionally. Look at verse 12, Job 42. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. I don't know where you're at in the book of Job in your life as you walk with God through difficulty and deprivation. But the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and the Lord gives again in abundance. So how should we respond to this? Uh, first, some 25 times Job asked this question. It's a single word. He asked, why? And what is interesting is it is a question that God never answered. It's not about head knowledge. It's not about giving us an explanation that we'll understand. Job's head wanted answers, but what Job's heart really needed was God personally and experientially. And that may be what God is doing in this season of difficulty and deprivation. Job writes this in Job 23, verse 10, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out 
as gold. You see that in chapter 42. Uh, Secondly, how should we we respond to this? Well, at the end of the day, we need to know this. God will always be great. He will always be good. And as James 5.11 says, he will always be compassionate and merciful. The very two things we forget when we're going through a season of difficulty and deprivation. I need this reminder. I I need the reminder that God is compassionate and merciful. And you need this reminder to say with Job in Job 13, verse 15, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. As James 5.11 says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, trusting in God. Two verses after James' illustration, and this is the third way in which we can respond this morning. We saw this in chapter 42. Two verses after James' illustration of Job in chapter 5, verse 11, in James 5.13, he asks this question. Is anyone among you suffering? And a really simple three-word response. He just says this, let him pray. Talk openly to the God who cares for you and keeps you. Isaiah 43 says this, when you pass through the waters... I will be with you, God says. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray to the God who cares and keeps. It could be, a fourth way that we respond to this, is that God is allowing you to suffer so that you can comfort others through a similar affliction. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I love these two descriptions, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort, comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It could be the very thing God is orchestrating in your life through suffering, through difficulty, through deprivation, is for you to come alongside another and help them through that affliction and share with them the comfort that you have received of God. And then finally this morning, the fifth way that we can respond is simply respond to Jesus' words in Matthew 11 when he says this in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't summon the mighty or the wise or the proud to follow him, but those who are weak and pressed down by heavy burdens, those who are suffering, those who are afflicted, he says, come to me. And you will find rest for your souls. Do you know the gospel is good news for weary wanderers? Turn from your sin, those things that weigh you down, and turn to the meek and gentle King of kings and Lord of lords, and you will find rest for your souls.